Hello again, friends, and welcome to the Young Anglicans podcast. The Young Anglicans podcast is a place for conversation and discussion about ministry to teenagers through the lens of Anglicanism. It's hosted by me, Andrew Unger, and me, Eric Overholt. We're both real-life Anglican youth pastors who want to see young people find and follow Jesus for the rest of their lives. We're glad you're with us. And we're glad this episode to have uh, Taylor Ishii from Church of the Apostles Eastern Shore. He's the director of student ministry. Um, Taylor, why don't you in- introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit more about you and where you come from, things like that. Hey, guys. Glad to be here on the podcast. Um, I am a Southern California native. I grew up in Orange County. I spent some time in the Chicago area for undergrad, came back to Orange County to do some seminary, spent some time at an Anglican church in the Dallas area, and now have migrated further east to the southeast kind of coastal Alabama. So I'm curious, you did, um, you don't have an Anglican background before you started in student ministry, right? Like, how did you get connected with the Anglican world in the first place? Um, I got connected in the Anglican world, actually in college. Um, okay. During college, I started going to an Anglican church, um, Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. Um, and that was my first introduction to Anglicanism. Um, I had kind of sensed the call to ministry prior to that. That was part of the reason I was um, studying Bible and theology at Wheaton College, and um, I grew up in a large mega church evangelical um, place in Southern California. So, um, in the process of looking for churches when I got to Wheaton, I was having a hard time just finding the right spot. It was hard for me to not compare to what I had grown up in, whether that was good or bad. That Mm. was just kind of where I was at. So I had two good friends who were going to res and they invited me to come along, which was perfect because I didn't have a car. So they were my (laughs) ride to church and had never been to an Anglican church, didn't even know what it was. Um, and was just, um, it was a whole different ball game for me church wise. I had never worshiped in a liturgically oriented church before Um, And what really helped me stick was seeing the overlap to what I was learning in the classroom. Um, For for instance, my systematic theology class, it was structured around the creed. Part of our final was that we had to write out the Nicene Creed from memory, which, worshipping in an Anglican church, I nailed that part because we said it every week in service. (laughs) So it was little things like that that really helped me to find a historical rootedness that I didn't even know that I was looking for and that I had lacked in my evangelical um, megachurch upbringing. Yeah. So, so I'm curious. Um, I, I, I don't know how much at that point your kind of like vision of ministry or your understanding of what ministry would look like. I don't mm-hmm. know how formed that was at that point, but I'm curious how that therefore then changed the way you thought you might approach youth ministry. Um, like, because you're now going to do it in an Anglican church, how did it change things? Or did, or is that more of a process? That was definitely more of a process. I mean, I think for me, one of my big learnings was after graduating from college, 
I felt like I still needed a lot more training to be a pastor, mm -hmm. which led me back to Southern California, back to Fuller um, to do my master's divinity degree. And in the process, I continued to worship and work on part-time staff at the church that I grew up in, but was using my field education work as an opportunity to begin to work with some Anglican church plants in, in my area. So I was getting to a little bit of both as I was in the process of just discerning where do I feel called in ministry. Um, didn't really have, a like I said, much of a concept for denominational mm -hmm. um, ministry, but really liked what I had seen and experienced as a part of the Anglican church in college and was interested in just kind of pressing into that a little bit more during seminary. And kind of at, by the end of seminary, really felt like that was where I felt um, like God was leading me to do further ministry, which was really surprising to me. Hmm. Interesting. That's interesting. I wonder, like, I think growing up, I didn't have any sense of denominational calling as well or denominational identity, even though, um, you know, my dad worked growing up at a North American Baptist college, so he had some understanding. Mm -hmm of like the denomination that we belong to. But I wonder mm -hmm. if that's a uniquely low church tradition thing to have no real care or concern for denominational heritage. Like, I don't know many Baptists who are like dedicated Baptists as opposed to like Christian Missionary Alliance, non-denominational, any community church traditions. Like, it seems like the distinction between various low church denominations, like non-mainline, um, mm -hmm. it seems like the concept of ministry is like, this is what church looks like. And then there's those like weird mainliners who do weird things and we're not even sure about them, but like, this is generic church. And so if it's under one of these other various Baptist, again, Christian Missionary Alliance, all denominations that have history and structure and hierarchy and distinctives, but, um, I don't know, growing up, I didn't have a sense for like, well, I'm a Baptist mm -hmm. as opposed to a Southern Baptist or as opposed to a community church person. Um, yeah, like I had no appreciation for that. So I think, I mean, I felt similarly going into Anglican ministry, um, not having any sense of that. Mm. I grew up in a Nazarene church, uh, came to Anglicanism in in uh, college, but I would I would say there were conversations that happened in my youth group about wh what does it mean for us to, to be Nazarene hmm. and how does that, how does that separate us from all of, all of our friends that go to school with us that are Baptist or that are, you know, whatever. Yeah. And I, I dated a girl actually when I was in high school, I dated a girl who was Episcopalian and, um, I had no idea what that was and it was <laughs> weird and freaky and, <laughs> and, um, uh, my mom, my mom tried to tell me, and I, when I, I'm not even gonna tell you what my mom said, but when I, when I, when I think about back to what my mom said, it's kind of funny to think that I'm, I'm now Anglican. Yeah. But anyway, did uh, are there lots of Anglicans at Fuller? Because I know at Wheaton, like Res has this creeping influence over the last decade. I, I wouldn't be surprised if like Wheaton plus Res is producing like all these pastors for ACNA. Um, but does Fuller have that, that creeping that's Anglican like thing? Actually, a thing I think in the Wheaton context. Um, there's a bit of it, it at Fuller. Um, it's there, like there's some connection. Like I, I've got a couple of friends that I went to, um, that I went to seminary with. A couple of them have, you know, planted churches in LA, in mm -hmm. Santa Cruz, so Northern California, in, you know, Austin, Texas area. Yeah. 
and and you know so there there's a bit of it and i think some of it is just you know connection to you know diocese of western anglicans diocese of churches for the sake of others Mm -hmm. there's there's a strong enough anglican presence in and around fuller that i think um it's becoming a bit of a a pipeline if you will especially for evangelicals who are interested in church history Mm -hmm. tradition yeah liturgy stuff yeah. like that that's a that's a good entryway and fuller fuller is so broad that you've got people coming in from all kinds of backgrounds yeah. and i think in a really interesting and helpful way so people you know come in in, a, in one denomination might go through two or three in the process but yeah. come out on the other end yeah or, yeah or they're rubbing shoulders with folks and and that that just sparks something in their mm-hmm. journey too I can speak some to that as well because my church, actually, St. Luke's, is the closest Anglican church, well, the closest really established Anglican church to Fuller. Um, mm-hmm. It's just, just down the freeway from from where where we are. Um, so I, I was actually going to say earlier, I'm a little surprised, Taylor, that, that you and I never ran into each other when you were at seminary, seminary there at mm-hmm. Fuller. Um, where, where did you, you were mentioning serving in some of the churches here in the Southern California area. What, like where, where was, where were you doing mm-hmm. that? Well, some of that was actually, my parents still live in Orange County. So I was actually okay. commuting Down from there. Orange okay. County up to Pasadena. So uh-huh. I was connected with a plant that ended up closing its doors down in Mission Viejo mm, okay. for a season. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. Um, so... You mentioned, um, you know, you, you served at a church in Dallas for a while, and now you're in Alabama. Um, mm-hmm. One of the reasons, one of the things I thought would be an interesting place to start is those two churches you're at have remarkably different um, sizes. Like one, the one in Dallas has, I mean, hundreds of students. Is that, would that be an accurate number? Hundred? Around a hundred Okay. yeah. Um, and now you're doing like a reboot starting from scratch. Um, mm-hmm. What are some of the things you've been in this new position for a few months now? Yeah, since December, so okay. about five-ish months or so. What what strikes you as some of the differences between sort of big church youth ministry and small church youth ministry? Um, like, what are the, some of the differences you're noticing? Um, I mean, good or bad, just sort of those different types mm-hmm. of contexts. I mean, I think part of that is just even thinking about what I was doing on the front end mm-hmm. when I got hired. Part of what I was doing was just keeping the ball rolling in Dallas. Yeah. You know, it was a ministry that had been established for a while. And part of what we were, you know, part of my job was to just continue, you know, there were kind of, you know, traditions in yeah. the youth ministry, yeah. things that happened. So just making sure that that stuff happened while beginning to slowly but surely put, you know, my own emphases or mark mm-hmm. on it in particular ways, but also not changing so quickly that it was disorienting for folks where right. it mm-hmm. didn't feel for the students and for the families where it didn't feel like, Oh, this isn't what we thought we, you know, were this, this feels like four and this feels different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So just thinking strategically about how do you do that? You know, and also a lot of it. And I think what has been consistent across the board has been my desire to, learn first before mm-hmm. I try to make big changes. Yeah. Um, no, you know, I had never lived in Texas before I moved there. I had never lived in coastal Alabama before I moved here. So just getting a sense of what does it look like for the families 
and my students? What mm. does their life look like? What are the particularities to the context that we're in? How does that inform the way and shape of the ministry that we do? So here, I'll give you an example of something that I learned that is very much coastal Alabama context. Um, Mardi Gras is a big, big deal here. Mm. Um, mm. So interestingly, Mobile, which is our closest large city, Mobile was the original birthplace of Mardi Gras in the South. Mm. And mm. New Orleans stole it. That's what everyone <laughs> in Mobile will tell you. They stole it and they made it bigger. And there was even like a big bulletin board that said home of Mardi Gras. And it pointed you towards Mobile right outside of New Orleans, which is kind of funny. So an interesting thing that I learned about my context is my students have Mardi Gras week off of school. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, they don't have school. Oh, wow. Public schools. Wow. So that's a very interesting thing to, for me to think about contextually. Yeah. About of saying, you know, this is kind of a, this is a cultural holiday in a way that it never was anywhere that I lived before. Yeah. But also thinking about, you know, going forward in the future, how do I help my students to really inhabit what Mardi Gras and Fat Tuesday and Ash Wednesday, all yeah. of that's about spiritually because it's got this big cultural pull. pull. You know, there's all kinds of parades that happen for a month prior to all yeah. this. Wow. But, but what's the spiritual importance of it? How does this, how can this be a season for helping them to prepare for Lent beyond just going to a bunch of parades? Right. So that's like an example of something that's real that I would have never known that I've had to learn and think about. Yeah. And now I'm beginning to try to integrate into the way that I'm going to do youth ministry. Here. That's we sometimes, you know, talk amongst ourselves how like how Anglican is your youth ministry? Because a lot of us who have youth ministry backgrounds right. don't have a necessarily like Anglicanized way to do it. But just right. thinking like, man, having Ash Wednesday off of school, like. Just the opportunities, that's just a whole different, I mean, it's a challenge because, I mean, families might be taking, I don't know if they take vacations or if they all stick around. Yeah, They've already got family activities. To, to, to ski trip. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a second spring break. That's nice. Totally. Um, but that, like, that's just such an interesting thing that, yeah, I would have no, I mean, off the top of my head, I can't even think about what I would do, but it feels like. That's something, though. Like, that's... Yeah, there's an opportunity there yeah. right, to speak into the cultural life. Yeah. Um, mm. And even to party well. Like, like to yeah. do Fat Tuesday really well. To be yeah. like, this is a thing that the church started. And, and yeah, Mobile's doing a parade. But, like, this is our day. And, and we can do this kind of stuff well. Like, we do a pancake dinner at All Souls um, that mm -hmm. people like a lot. And increasingly, you know more and more people come, but it's hard to do on a Tuesday school night to do sure, events, sure. right? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. So I'm, I'm curious, though. It makes me think, and I'm, I'm not really supposed to ask Andrew questions, but I'm going <laughs> to ask Andrew a question because I, I think it's really cool to hear Taylor talking about how his, his, his city's culture and his church's culture is informing the way he's going to go about doing youth ministry mm -hmm. at at his church. So I'm curious if you have found anything, Andrew, there at All Souls or or in your unique context that oh, okay, this is distinctively Wheaton or it's oh, distinctively yeah. Midwestern. That you know, like, are you having Ludafisk or whatever, and yeah. you know, stuff like that. We do not have that. I only know that by reputation. Um, not quite honestly, far enough north for not, that. Yeah, we're not far enough north for that. We're not Swedish enough. That's Swedish, right? That's does that sound right? Norwegian? 
I don't know. It's something like they're that. all the same to me. Uh, I'm sure <laughs> offended someone else there. Um, yet, I mean, the, the Wheaton things is like a few years ago. I had a kid who was a regular part of a different church's um, leadership team, and he wanted to join my leadership team as well. And like, I had a phone call with him where I was like, "Listen, like, there are different requirements. There are different like I have these expectations. Do you really think you can fulfill the expectations that I have while also?" being what you need to be to that community. He's like, yeah, sure. Like Wheaton's a weird place because kids are over church. Like kids pick and choose which youth ministries they want to do for which nights. Um, you know, a lot of my students' best friends go to other churches. And so sometimes they'll go to other churches, youth ministry events, or um, I complain about it, but Wheaton College has this uh, summer camp called Honey Rock, which just everybody in Wheaton's, life revolves around like which session of honey rock are you going to and it takes kids out for like three weeks and it's excellent and it just torpedoes summer anything for yeah. for summer planning for me like no, for me no i complain about summer camp, summer camp no we could i can hardly get a, a mission trip with people coming let alone mm. if i had to do a summer camp wow. as well we'd i wouldn't have anybody um mm. so yeah wheaton wheaton's got this weird challenges because it's too churchy um mm. And I feel like I often have to, for, especially from my perspective, fight against some of the, like, cultural evangelicalism. Like, Wheaton's the one place where you can have, like, a culture of nominal evangelicalism in the way that there's a sort of stereotypical culture of nominal Catholicism in some places. Like, that can exist in Wheaton, Illinois, in a different kind of way. Um, although, I mean, it, it it's diverse. There's lots of refugees. It brings in, actually, a larger... There's a larger Muslim population here than where I grew up, but um, mm -hmm. yeah, it's it's got weird challenges. Eric, what about you? What what is the godless paganism of Los Angeles? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, like the obvious answer would be, well, we're much more post-Christian out here in Los Angeles, and, yeah. and there there is there is some reality to that. Um, though in northern Los Angeles, there's less of that. I mean, we're in a, we're in a sleepier part of Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Um, that's, that's a little bit more conservative yeah. as far as things go that way. But, but in our context, what, what we have that's unique is that there aren't very many Anglican churches around. Mm. Mm. So, um, we at St. Luke's we're, we're one of the more established Anglican churches. And so we're pulling people from lots of, you know, lots of different communities around Los Angeles. Mm. And you know, so there's people that come from, you know, 45 minutes to the east and people that come from about half an hour to the northwest and and kind of all the areas in between there. And so that creates its own set of challenges being, for lack of a better term, a destination church. Yeah. Um, that commuter it, it, church, right? A commuter church, yeah. yeah. Uh, and yeah, in a driving city, we're a, we're a commuter church. And that really has an impact on the kinds of things you can do within a youth ministry. Sure. Um, so, you know, it like I'd really love to youth, move youth groups, like simple things like I'd love to move youth group to Wednesday nights, but that's going to make it hard for some of those students that are coming from half an hour away or yeah. whatever. If we don't finish up till 830 or nine o'clock on a Wednesday night, then they're not getting home till like 930 or 945. And so it just, it, you know, that's that's the first thing that comes to my mind when I think about that that idea. Yeah. Taylor, is your area overwhelmingly like are you a rare anglican church or are there other like mainline churches in the area so 
that's, a, I think, a difference about being in the South is the Episcopal Church has had a presence here for a long, long time. Hmm. There's yeah. a large Episcopal Church right around the corner from where we're at hmm. that um, my rec- both the rector here and the associate have had spent different seasons on staff there. Hmm. Um, so different things like that. So I think, um, I think people, people know what, ang- well, people actually may not even realize there's a distinction between Anglicanism and the Episcopal Church, right. potentially, which is a different, you know, yeah. a different reality as well. You right. know, having grown up on the West Coast, I had no idea what Anglicanism was. <laughs> right. Yeah. Just because there weren't, you know, kind of to Eric's point, there weren't any around that yeah. I had known of. In Dallas, is the Episcopal Diocese of Dallas still active and alive? Like, was there intermingling there as well? Um, to some degree. I mean, Dallas is a different issue, too, because Dallas had a lot of, you know, some of the issues of just, you know, cross-jurisdictional stuff. And I don't want right. to spend a ton of time talking no. about Anglican polity. But, you know, we had churches near us that were in the international diocese we had churches near us that were in the rec we had churches near us that were diocese of fort worth yeah plus the episcopal diocese of, of dallas so it was even hard to just know who your neighbors were that was mm-hmm. even a challenge in in some ways mm-hmm. now we can we can do a whole other episode about complaining about that stuff wheaton i've got <laughs> yeah. we've got four <laughs> bishops within a square mile technically right um, right so like i i feel that pain yeah. So, and, it, and unfortunately, that means you, you know, the unfortunate reality of that is we didn't get to do as much kind of just broader Anglican youth ministry in any way yeah. that I would have hoped that we could have yeah. done. So, Taylor, let me ask you this question, uh, mm-hmm. which I kind of I hinted at earlier, but I, I'd love to know, like, in in your in hearing your interesting pathway, you know, growing up in a you know SoCal megachurch and you know finding Anglicanism at Res and all that kind of stuff, like what now that you're a youth pastor, you've been doing it for a little while, wh- like what do you find yourself drawing from your kind of non-denom megachurch youth ministry, and what do you find yourself drawing from Anglicanism to kind of create? youth ministry in whatever context you're in? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. And, and some of that stuff has been contextual to just even like where the ministry that I'm a part of is at, where okay. I think part of, part of what made, you know, the time that I served at the church in Dallas, what was helpful for me was being in a large church context, having mm. grown up in, you know, a couple hundred person youth group. Mm-hmm. Okay. I just kind of intuitively understood what larger church youth ministry is like. Okay. And a lot of those structural pieces, just the teamwork necessary to pull stuff like that off, how much you you know, how much you have to be in conversation with the other departments within the church and just that, you know, kind of mentality mm-hmm. versus, you know, in the place that I'm at now. Um, bec- and part of it is there hasn't, there were there have been seasons of it, but not recently of having stronger youth youth group culture. Um, the students that I currently have, it's really interesting because they don't even have a lot of like youth group expectations. Mm-hmm. They've never really been a part of a youth group before. Mm-hmm. So part of it is just teaching them stuff. And it's been even like little things of like, you know, the other week I worked with um, one of the 
lawyers in our congregation to put together a basic like general consent form because we didn't have something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. So, right. you know, just just even building up some of those little structural pieces. And a lot of my understanding of that stuff has been from being in larger contexts where we had stuff like that. Yeah. Where, mm-hmm. you know, so I'm trying I'm committed to trying to build a broader structure and not just, you know, jump in and just, you know, teach the Bible because that's important. But I also want to help create a sustainable structure that will go forward down the line that we can actually build and gather some momentum behind yeah. and not just kind of, you know, running around doing things ad hoc and trying to be the Pied Piper of the teenagers or something like that. Which like is basically, to. that's basically what I do. At yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's no, but because that's an easy thing to do when you're that. I mean, that's a large part of how I function at All Souls um, and Savior. There's this, it, it's easy and simple to do Pied Piper, throw it together last minute. Because when you've got a smaller group, um, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term, the production value can be small. If I'm standing in sure, front of sure. them and my lesson is not really polished and it, I'm kind of rambly or I'm asking some questions, mm-hmm. they might even feel. Like, their relationship with me is such that they're like, oh, yeah, like, Andrew had a rough week this week. Like, because mm-hmm. all of the students can talk to me afterwards. There's a certain closeness that doesn't require you to be as polished. And so you, right. in any given week, stuff comes up and you don't want to put the extra effort into that last 10% of polishing off a lesson or polishing off a plan. And sure. you're like, I've got enough. Mm-hmm. With what I have, I can mm-hmm. pull this off. Um, but that makes, what I've found is... Um, being Pied Piper means that um, no one else gets to lead with you. Um, we had John mm-hmm. Mark Smith on a couple of weeks ago talking about expectations for leaders and things like that. And I found it's very hard for me to be good at delegating to leaders if I don't have my stuff together and if I don't have a plan and if I don't even ask them. Um, I have, I've had these awesome leaders on Wednesday nights, many of whom are musically inclined and we do evening prayer and I was just leading the songs because like, I'll just do it. Um, and I, mm-hmm. I thought like, if they wanted to, they would tell me and three fourths of the way through mm-hmm. the year, I was like, Hey guys, I'm bad at delegating. This is my attempt to do otherwise. I would love <laughs> if one, if you guys would do music and evening prayer and lead that and do that kind of stuff. Are any of you able to do that? And like two of them said, yeah, I can do that once a month. And we created a rotation and it was just because that bit of extra effort to be organized made mm-hmm. a huge, and it's, it's had a, such a positive impact. Um, Yeah. And I think I've just kind of picked that up, like I said, intuitively growing up mm -hmm. and having served at a larger church. Yeah. You know, now that I'm relaunching kind of, you know, not completely, but partially starting this thing from scratch, Mm -hmm. I'm trying to, you know, I've got some goals and stuff that I'm going to do for the next year, which was basically get a youth group type meeting off the ground. But I'm also trying to keep an eye towards where I want to be in a couple of years, knowing that we've got a really strong children's ministry at the moment so it's possible that in the next three or four years just internal growth not even counting friends and outsiders or anything who we have at the church there's going to be an extra maybe 15 or 20 kids my group Mm -hmm. is going to essentially double in size yeah so i need to be have an eye on that and and be partially prepared for that yeah yeah and yeah well i was just gonna say that's actually i got hired on before um all Souls had enough students. Like they sort of saw, there was sort of scattered, you know, sixth through twelfth graders, but they saw the very consistent 
groups of students in the elementary school age and they were like mm-hmm. we need to have someone in place so when these kids graduate in or you know move into those teenage years there is something there like they hired me in foresight rather than like waiting mm-hmm. till there were teenagers everywhere and going like oh no what do we do with all of our teenagers um and th- that's kind of a bit of the story here where yeah. there's always been it you know it's this is a this is a church that's been around for 20 years, but mm-hmm. we're just in the season where we've got a ton of young families because that's yeah. kind of how our area is trending. Our area is the fastest growing area in Alabama. So hmm. there was great foresight in the leadership to, yeah. be, to be ready for something like this. Yeah. And they, they brought you on full time as youth pastor? Yeah. And, you know, being a priest as well, I've got my hands in some other areas. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know. I've got some other leadership that I can exercise within the church community as a whole as well. You know, being on a small church staff, you know, you might have one particular area of focus, but, you know, there's always other hats you wear and things like that. Yeah. How has that adjustment been from going like, I mean, at at a big church, you're very siloed into your particular role and being Mm -hmm. in a small church and being a priest, I'm sure you get tagged for for preaching and there's other things that you Mm -hmm. go to that are the kind of meetings you would have never been at at a large church. How has that transition been? Um, it's been good. And I think um, just even personally that I felt like that's kind of what I was, I was feeling called to step m- more, just more regularly into mm-hmm. those kinds of capacities. And there's just the vision of, you know, essentially I'm a priest for some of these, for these families, yeah. you know, not just a ministry to the students who are under my care, but, you know, walking al- alongside these parents and helping them disciple their kids and also, you know, being a priest to them as well. Yeah. It's a, mm-hmm. it's kind of this, you know, really, um, when they were looking initially, they weren't looking for a priest. They were mm-hmm. looking for a youth pastor because that's, you know, mm-hmm. not a necessarily a regular combination. Right. You know, it's not totally abnormal, but it, you know, you're also, you know, not necessarily expecting that, yeah. but just the, just, you know, hearing some of my experience and some of my vision and, and just seeing just the, the way that, you know, we were matched up in that mm-hmm. aspect. It's been, it's been really good. So I've enjoyed getting to do the things like one of the fun things I'm getting to do is, you know, where I've got my eye on, you know, in two years thinking through our confirmation process. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've even got this idea I'm kicking around in my head of what would it look like to involve the families more deeply in a confirmation process Mm -hmm. in a way that I that was hard to do in a larger, you know, church. You know, when we had about 30 kids in our confirmation class, that's a different animal than trying to minister well to, say, you know, seven, six or seven kids, Mm -hmm. maybe or or less than that. You know, so just thinking about that. And so I'm excited about, you know thinking through those kinds of realities of, you know, how do we, you know, not just catechize the students, but how do we catechize the whole family and help them, you know, have these kinds of spiritual conversations? How do we help equip them to talk about what God is doing in their lives around their family table, not just the Lord's table? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Talk a little bit about whether or not you you feel like it's uh, a well, what advantages do you think it is that that you are ordained as a priest? Uh, and and I'm mostly with this. I'll admit I'm I'm talking, asking this question in front of all of the priests or or other people who think it doesn't matter whether or not the the youth pastor is ordained. And uh, t- tell tell me why if you think that matters and why you think that matters if if it does. Um. 
I think what I would say is some actually a piece of advice that another priest, um, while I was in the process of just even discerning ordination mm-hmm. and, and all of that, he said, Taylor, this is becoming a priest is not going to necessarily help you do your job better. You mm-hmm. can do your job as youth minister because I was I was on staff and got ordained um, at the church in Dallas. So I was hired as a lay person and ended up, you know, serving in the same capacity later on as clergy. So he oh, said essentially that Taylor, you can do your job fully right now as a lay person. Mm-hmm. So the conversation was getting ordained. What does that do? And I think for some, for me, it, it adds some of that extra. Just authority and weight in a healthy way. Okay. Um, like I said, I think I've got a little bit more ability to speak into the broader life of the church. Um, you know, like, a, and I think that you know, co- conversation about what what does family catechesis look like is an example of that. Um, yeah. You know, I've I've I, and for me, I, I'm thinking about the whole too, where I'm fo- I'm concentrated on my area, but you know, I'm I'm wanting to make sure there's like an explicit tie into sacramental life yeah uh, yeah and, i'll admit I, all those all those things that i wish i had uh, you know <laughs> as a, as a lay person doing youth ministry yeah. yeah well and i think you know just the modeling of you know the fact that you know i get to preach or i get to celebrate at the table mm-hmm. you know and just seeing the connection where the you know i think the students see like you know that's our guy and he's fully involved in the life yeah. of the church and i hope that you know that allows me to then invite them into the broader life of the church as well saying i'm a part of this i want you to be a part of it too now do your do your students call you father um i'm you know i'm still new enough that i'm kind of working that out so an interesting thing is you know being here i thought the south was going to be super super formal and it mm-hmm. is like you know I do have some students who address me, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. And, you know, for, for a California boy, that that is still getting some, some getting used to. But there is a level of casualness because it is coastal culture that is kind of cool yeah. that I that I do do like. So, um, and, and I, I think, you know, I'm happy for them to be either way. And I think just because there's a formalness already in the culture, they can call me father too. Yeah. That's fine. But I'm not, I'm never going to stop a student and force them to yeah. call me father. <laughs> my students knew me initially. My first group of students, when I started 11 years ago, I was a lay person. And so over time, as I was ordained as a deacon and as a priest, um, the transition was kind of weird for them. Like when I was a deacon and first wearing a collar, I showed up that Sunday, sort of before I was ordained, so they were going to ordain me later, but I was already wearing the collar, and they looked at me, and they were all just kind of like, like, grossed out was almost the right word. Like, they were like, ew, like, what is this? <laughs> um, and part of that's because I was younger, but it was just strange for them because of the close relationship, and they perceived clergy to be kind of distant. And then a few years later, when I became a priest, they were pretty explicit right off the bat that they were not going to call me father. Like, that was clear... We're not going to call you Father Andrew. That's not who you are. You are Andrew to us. And, you know, some... Like unsolicited, yeah. unsolicited. They just like came to you, like at the reception, after your ordination. They're like, no, it was sort of we're like, not there. As it was becoming clear that I was about to be ordained as a priest, they were like, wait a minute. It's like one day it clicked for one of the students. And they were like, wait a minute. That means some people will call you Father Andrew, <laughs> but I am not one of those people. Like there's a category of people that call you that and I'm not in that. And that's because we had built up a sort of history of 
a relationship that wasn't defined by that formality. And so that would feel weird to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not actually mm-hmm. bothered by that. I'm, I'm comfortable with that close of a relationship with my students that like, they don't feel like they have to call me father. Um, if some of them do, I don't correct them otherwise. But I found that as kids come into the youth group and as, you know, younger kids, they think of me as father Andrew or their parents call me father Andrew. Um, it, it's like, it's slowly enculturated out of them. Like the culture of the youth group is, this is just Andrew. I don't refer to myself as father Andrew very frequently. And so, you know, sixth graders or seventh graders might say like father Andrew, but since no one else does, it kind of wears away over time. Um, and I'm comfortable with that. I mean, not a lot of adults call me father Andrew. And at first that might've been because I was younger and I was still a kid to them. But I think just our church isn't full of that, that kind of a formality. Um, and so it's just not part of it. At the same time, I think my value as a priest, it brings a lot to my youth ministry. I mean, the, the students are able to have communion on retreats and things like that. They're able to see me, like Taylor, you were talking about, they're able to see me as an umf- upfront person. You know, I'll preach and they'll mm-hmm. see that that's our, that's Andrew. That's the guy we, we talk to all the time. They never feel like they're getting a junior minister um, with them. Not that lay ministers are junior ministers, but they... They never get the sense <laughs> that's terribly offensive to you, um, <laughs> but but they there's never a temptation for them to see me as as anything less than a, a full minister. And the fact that the church takes one of its priests and says, "Yeah, you continue to do youth ministry," I think speaks to the youth, um, perhaps in an intangible way that they don't get right off the bat, just what a value they are to the church and how important this ministry is. Yeah, I think that that's definitely true. Um, in my new context, when they were looking to hire a youth minister, they weren't necessarily looking to hire a priest, but kind of as some of our conversations developed and, and everything that happened, and there was just a a, um, a shared philosophy of ministry, just period, they realized, oh, having a priest can be a huge asset in ways that we hadn't even initially thought when we were getting this when we were starting this process of you know calling someone to do ministry with our our students and Mm. yeah i've I've experienced it in the same sort of way i'm never heavy-handed about saying i more tell i usually tell my students you can call me father taylor but i will never make you call me father Mm. taylor Mm -hmm. yeah i'm i was just gonna i'm curious for you guys like when when I'm hearing your story, Andrew, and I'm hearing in that some of that is like teenagers, like they want, they're beginning to come out from under the authority of their parents, the beginning, they're not out, but they're Mm -hmm. beginning to. And I'm wondering if some of the resistance that you're hearing comes from a reluctance to just assume another authority immediately uh, from this guy who actually I thought was really cool. And now he's going to become, you know, this other guy. So is is there some of that in there? Yeah, I wonder if that's part of it. I think... Again, it's part of how I do youth ministry, but it is all built on a, a heavy sense of equality, of of a, a sort of non-hierarchical relationship between us. Um, now, sometimes that means that that students are, I mean, like outright disrespectful to me. Like there are that boundary gets crossed a lot, um, and part of that's, mm-hmm. that that comes from my personality. Um, being very self-deprecating in my humor means that I model to them like 
making fun of Andrew is a fun thing to do. You should try it. And they're like, yeah, you're right. It is a lot of fun. We should try it. <laughs> and so like, that's all part of it. But um, yeah, I, I think if I were to pull out in my current context to suddenly start being father Andrew um, and, and to insist on that or to make that a big deal or to wear my collar more often than I do, I think they would suddenly, it would be jarring for the students that are there um, because they just would suddenly have to reframe the dynamic between us. Um, I think it's actually the same reason if I started to offer um, sacramental confession more regularly. Tracy Russell talks about doing that in her youth ministry, and I'm envious, Mm -hmm. but I think in order to do that Mm -hmm. well, you have to have a certain kind of relationship with the priest um, that doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be distant, but it has to sort of recognize that role as distinct and different um and to insert that into my current group would actually feel jarring and it would take some getting used to and probably high school students would resist it a lot um so i'm really reticent to introduce that aspect of it because it just feels like this group it would do poorly if i'm ever in a new context or if like suddenly everyone from my church moves away and a whole new group of people moves in. Maybe I just start to do sacramental <laughs> confession. But, um, but yeah, I think, I think it's as much to do with the dynamic of my group as it is this authority figure. But I'll bet that plays a lot into it, if that makes sense. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, that's something that I've thought about a lot. Um, and not being a priest, like the idea of, sacramental confession like we're thinking of it isn't really Mm -hmm. available to me but what i love when i hear tracy talk about that is what inevitably must be just a culture of grace that is extended within their youth group that that i find i find myself envious of like wow i would love for that to be a core part of my youth ministry and Mm. how and so the but again not being a priest my thoughts were well why can't kids be confessing sure. to each other and and are, am i creating spaces within my youth ministry for kids to be confessing their sins yeah. one to another uh, as, and and then i'm even thinking that in in those if there's that culture that's developed there's inevitably going to be stuff kids aren't going right. to confess to each other right but i would hope that i would create the kind of relationship with them and we would create the kind of culture within our youth group that those things that they might not confess to their other friends they might come and yeah. confess to me or to or to a priest or yeah. you know whomever. Um, anyway, just a thought. Any thoughts on that, Taylor? Um, yeah, I think there there is something very special about you know being able to speak on behalf of the broader church. Mm. Um, you know, I think especially in this kind of confessional context, one of the one of the spaces I've been thinking about this a lot recently is um, is through mm-hmm. confirmation. Um, you know, because confirmation is essentially kind of calling people to be full-fledged members of the church, you know, mm. especially for those who, you know, in our context have been maybe baptized as, as infants or young children and haven't been able to speak for themselves. It's an opportunity to affirm that. And I think part of me being a priest and doing youth ministry is I get to walk alongside them and kind of call them on behalf of the church to a fuller sense of maturity. Um, that's something I've been thinking about because that's actually shaping how I think about youth ministry as a whole. Um, part of where I, part of the role I see myself in is kind of equipping my students to be 
adult Christians by the time they graduate. Mm. And, you know, maybe not completely fully formed, you know, there's still a level of adolescence and, and all of that. But, you know, the society as a whole, by the time they turn 18, looks at them as an adult. So, and, you know, confirmation actually is a great yeah. vehicle by which to, you know, push them towards that kind of maturity in a church context, too. Yeah, I th- that it, that reminds me of the last couple times I've done, like, interesting spiritual practices with my students. Like, on the retreat we were on um, just a f- few weeks ago, maybe a month ago, um, I gave them space to, like, do some reflection, right? Like, just some contemplative, you're quiet, you and your journal— mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were two parts. One was, where are you now? The other one's, where are you going? That's immaterial. One of the things I said to them, though, was like, I'm not asking you currently to do like junior spiritual disciplines. Like these aren't kid versions of something that I'm going to do. Like, I'm not going to be checking on you guys because I'm also going to be taking this time to do my own reflection. Like, I sort of wanted to impress upon them that the stuff we were doing wasn't like youth stuff. Um, like we were doing mm-hmm. spiritual practices. We were doing the kinds of things that hopefully they incorporate into their own, you know, rules of life for the rest of their lives. Um, and confirmation is sort of the the ritual kickoff of like, okay, let's start doing adult spiritual practices. Let's start thinking of yourself in terms of full membership. Of course, you're still growing in your faith. Um, I mean, even even the idea that like, I got my kid confirmed, so I know they're going to be a Christian. Like, I, I sealed them. Um, <laughs> like, no matter what the mm-hmm. age is, um, I've, I've heard an argument against younger mm-hmm. confirmation because, like, well, they, you know, they might change in high school. Well, they might change in college or graduate school or, or when their best friend dies in their 30s. Mm-hmm. Like, like, you could add any sort of moment where you have to revisit your faith and it matures. But um, telling adolescents, like, okay, you're not kids anymore and we're starting to do adult things and I get to lead you through that. But like, you're doing the same stuff I'm doing. Like, I'm doing this with you. I think that's a really cool way to communicate to them a sort of push towards adulthood rather than a pull down to childhood, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm... See if I can formulate my thoughts about this. Um, I'm curious, one of the things that my church and and indeed even my whole diocese is kind of reexamining what we think we mean when we talk about full adult participation Mm -hmm. in the church, like being a full member of Mm -hmm. the church and, and realizing that we've, for too long, we've said, you know, if you're an usher or if you're serving in on the altar guild, if you're doing these other things to make Sunday morning happen, like you can check the box that I've ministered the gospel. Um, Not to minimize those things like altar guilds really important and we need great ushers and greeters and like all those things are great. But I think we do a disservice to the discipleship of the people in our churches when we, when we let them check off the box of I've become a minister of the gospel because I do those things. And so I'm curious, you guys' perspective, especially you, Taylor, like, what is it when you mean we're calling kids into full kind of adult life, into the life of the church completely, what do you mean when you say that? And what does that look like? I think for me, part of that is is giving them an imagination for a sense of Christian vocation. Mm-hmm. A sense of what is God calling me to with my life, which includes things like how am I gifted, how am I wired, 
Um, it could be connected to career stuff. I actually think this is a subtle way that the church can push back against this kind of like conveyor belt, you know, get to, to college so you get a good job so you can, you know, buy a house, you know, and, and there's a process to that. They're already thinking in those categories, but also pushing them to say, you know, how, if, if you're thinking about engineering, like what if you engineered great cities that help people flourish in their lives you know kind of trying to expand those categories beyond just you know you know getting a great job like that there might be an opportunity for a great job but you know like god wants to see the flourishing of his people so if you're an engineer mm. like make an awesome city where people can really live and thrive you know mm -hmm. don't just go chasing after you know the the highest paying engineering job that's going to pay the bills for you and let you live the lifestyle that you want. I think it's, it's just helping to maybe expand those categories. I think some of it too is, is pushing them into a nonlinear thinking about God's will of just, you know, like that whole, like, Oh, if I don't, if I don't do all these things, then, you know, God's not going to be happy with me, but actually how is God already at work in the small things in your life? And, mm -hmm. you know, just that kind of Peterson, Eugene Peterson idea of a long obedience in, in the same direction, mm -hmm. you know, just kind of giving them the space to develop a sense of spirituality where they can, you know, seek God day in and day out, not just with these, you know, big decisions in life that God cares about those little decisions just as much as he cares about the, the big decisions that you're making in your careers or schooling or family life or whatever. And I think part of that, though, is... Like you described, being an engineer is building a great, like designing great things. Or um, That's, I think, a better view. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you get this, like, God cares about individual decisions, which means, like, like, being a great engineer means, like, putting a microscopic Bible verse in the things you design so that someone finds it, right? Like, <laughs> right. Not, not that, like, is it in and out that has the Bible verses on the bottom of the cups? Like... Oh yeah, it's like right? on the like, inside of yeah, the it's not a bad stuff. thing. Yeah. It's not it's not bad that like you know Tim Tebow put Philippians 4:13 in his eye black and like whatever. Like that's that's not a bad thing per se, but like that is not what would make someone a like Christian football player, right? Like it wouldn't be that I said a Bible verse like a little incantation before I kick a field goal. It's it's something much more significant mm -hmm. than that. It's something more robust than that. Um, I've really been latching on to this language of confirmation as lay ordination as this like, because we mm -hmm. use the same, we use the same yep. oil at confirmation that we do at ordination, right? Like there's the oil that gets used at baptism and only for baptism. Then there's the, the chrism, which is used at confirmation and ordination, which to me speaks to the church's commitment to this idea that like, when you become a member of a church, you become Eric, I like that phrase, a minister of the gospel. Like, you are now doing this thing. So whatever career path you pick, wherever God wills for you to go, um, depending on how heavy-handed your, your reform background is, no matter what, you know, how, how you do this stuff, you can do it to the glory of God by doing it excellently. Like, a, a well-designed piece of art, even if it isn't explicitly biblical, might still bring glory to God because it's still beautiful. Um, yeah, like I, it makes you think of that, like do everything to the glory of God or work as if you're always working for God, like math homework done well is, mm -hmm. is bringing glory to God. Um, and confirmation is that moment where you're saying like, 
yeah, that's how I'm going to frame my life. In the same way that once I was ordained, I said, I don't get to not choose to serve God's church anymore. Like, I don't get to have a different vocation. This always will be part of my vocation, whether or not it's where I make my money. Um, I don't know. Eric, do you feel like, are there ways, I mean, thinking about ordination and thinking about how that functions, um, are there ways that you feel like being not ordained limits your capacity in youth ministry? Well, that's, I'm in a weird position because a full half of my youth group are not Anglican. And I actually think uh, it, it's going to be, if I'm still youth pastor at St. Luke's, if I become ordained, uh, like, I think that's going to be weird mm-hmm. for some of them. If, if I ever show up to youth group with yeah. a collar on, those, those, you know, some, I've got some Seventh-day Adventists, I've got some non-denominational, I've got some Baptists that, like, I think it might freak them out a little bit if I show mm-hmm. up with a collar on. Um, but at the same time, one of the things I'm thinking about as, you know, we've been, we've done Youth Alpha a few times now. It's great. It's grown our ministry. Like kids, I just saw testimony from one of the new kids this spring who just says, he said, I feel like I'm part mm. of a family. Mm. And I was like, that's awesome. This is a seventh grader said, I feel yeah. like part of a family because he's coming to our youth group. And I think it's amazing. And I'm excited about that. Um, and I want to keep doing that. But at the same time, I feel like w- w- I want to be able to go deeper with these kids. I want to get further into the Christian life with them. And for me, that means yeah. Anglicanism. And that, that means a bunch of really distinctly Anglican things like the sacraments and, and things like that. And I'm not quite sure how all these kids are going to react. W- if, if I start talking about how important yeah. communion is, or if I start talking mm. about, you know, the book of common prayer. And if you're having trouble reading here, you know, praying, here's some prayers that you can pray. Like, I don't know what their parents are going to think about that. Um, so in that sense, I, I would say it's probably helped me the past year and a half that I'm not mm. ordained um, be- because it hasn't created a barrier yeah. with their parents. At the same time, their parents, like the ones that I've connected with, seem to really, really appreciate what it is that we're doing and um, giving their kids a place to feel like they belong and you know, direct experience with the Holy Spirit and good, solid teaching and a place to have conversations about it. Like, that part of it's been great. Um, so I don't know. I mean, the, the answer is I think it's helped me up to now, but it'll be interesting to see what, what it's like, you know, six months to a year from now, whether or not I would still answer that question in the same way. So what does, what does confirmation, do we have time time to explain, explore like what, what confirmation actually looks like at, at your church, you guys like Taylor, have you led a confirmation class where you are now or like you still figuring that out? I'm still in the process of figuring that out. Um, one of the big things we've been having a conversation about is where, you know, where does confirmation happen, mm-hmm. you know, age-wise. And mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm kind of of the mindset of maybe late middle school, early high school is where I, you know, and, it's, and I'm getting to, to you know, do no. it from scratch. So that's probably where we're going to land, you know, but. I also don't want to necessarily attach to a particular grade is something I've been mm-hmm. thinking about lately. Maybe mm-hmm. creating like an age range in which you begin to have those conversations. Because mm-hmm. I think 
it's really important, and especially when you're talking about connecting it to this like broader sense of vocation and ministry mm-hmm. and things of that nature. I think that's an appropriate time where kids are already starting to think about those questions. Mm-hmm. So being able to walk alongside them as the church through that process could be really healthy, but also still not saying that it has to be, you know, if you don't get confirmed in eighth grade, you know, you're, you're just not going to get confirmed or, or whatever that looks like. You know, I think giving them some space to say, you know, we're taking confirmation seriously and I may not be ready for that. You know, maybe I need to sit down and have a conversation with Taylor a little bit more to talk about some questions that I have about God or in the midst of, you know, whatever our confirmation curriculum looks like, you know, to say like, hey, like, you know, you've done good work and if you're not there, you know, let's enter, let's pick this conversation up again next year, but let's continue, you know, that's an opportunity for some pastoral care. And the thing that I, I, I haven't quite figured out what to do with, but I'm very interested in, in, in trying to get some traction on is we've got a lot of young families that are coming to our church that aren't mm-hmm. Anglican. So mm-hmm. I've been thinking about what would it look like to catechize their families together. Yeah. There are a lot of those families are probably going to need confirmation, those adults, the parents. Right, right. And and how great would it be to have, you know, some space for youth only confirmation, but also to create some opportunities for spiritual conversations in their families, all mm-hmm. about the same sort of thing. So that's that that's kind of where I'm thinking these days and getting ready to to begin the big be- the first round of that this fall. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I I um I I was leading a confirmation class for this spring and uh, I had a couple of, of kids who were who needed to be confirmed, one who was just baptized last November and another who's who's grown up in the church. And it's interesting because um actually for, for various reasons I don't think either one of them is going to wind up being confirmed. Um, one of them we won't even get to. The other one, though, is I, I wanted to continue to pose it the whole way through. Like, hey, this is this is a step that you are taking as right. as a sure. person as a person who is growing up and who is beginning to make decisions for yourself. A, a big part of the point of this is you taking on your baptismal covenant and you making making your own statement of yeah, I'm confirming that this is what, it's no longer just my parents. Uh, you know, proclaiming this faith on my behalf. It's me taking upon this pro- proclamation of my faith. And because of that, this one student, he's like, you know, I'm just not quite sure I'm ready for that. It was like, I've got this and this and this question. And, and I'm just, I, I think I need some space to, to a little more time to think about that. Maybe I can do it next time the bishop comes. And I was like, let's keep talking. Let's go. I, I'm glad you feel like you can be honest with me. I'm glad you feel like, you know, we've created that space for, for you to make this a personal decision. Um, as hard as that is for me as his youth pastor, and like I'm dealing with my own feelings of failure in that way, um, I'm glad he felt like he could be honest with me in that way and is taking it seriously enough to not want to step out if he's not completely ready. Yeah, no, I see that as a – that's a success. Like for me, when I've got kids who are like, I'm not ready <laughs> to be confirmed, I'm like, yes. Because I, I always had this fear that like that all the kids are just – going through the motions, right? Like everybody signs up, they do the class, they say, yeah, they go in front of the bishop, that it's all just like, because in order to do a confirmation class, you have to set up a schedule and they just show up to the events and, Mm -hmm. you know, and they get it done. Um, I've had 
for what it's worth to, as a point of encouragement, I've had at least two students who didn't want to get confirmed when they went through our confirmation class, both of whom then got confirmed later. Um, and we do it on a two-year cycle. Mm, interesting. Um, we sort of switch off years um, between confirmation and then a, our our every two-year sex and dating retreat where we just cram every awkward conversation into one awkward weekend, um, which is great, <laughs> which has been hey. recently rebranded as um, Sexpo. That's what the, the students call it now, which is <laughs> my favorite thing that I've done in youth ministry. That's the best thing. So wait, so wait, I, I want to be, I want to make sure I'm understanding what you're saying. So you, you wrote like yeah. for confirmation, there's yes. a retreat. That, so what we end up doing on? is um, for us, there are two four hour classes, like two Saturdays. Each one is four hours split into two, two hour chunks. Um, so there's like, you know, four modules, um, one on the creed, one on the law, one on sacraments, one on prayer. Um, and then we do this weekend at that weekend. They've all been paired up with mentors for this process. We have a dinner. We pray for each of the students. Like we make them sit in a chair and we all lay hands on them. We all pray for them. So everyone gets prayed for. And if you have a lot of students like that can take like an hour because you go one by one and you pray. Mm -hmm. And usually, Usually at least me and their mentor are praying, but occasionally you have like these seventh graders praying for each other and it's beautiful. Um, mm -hmm. And then yep. over that weekend, I review the content and then I basically issue this charge that like, I want to meet with you um, one last time before the, the day of confirmation. I just want you to tell me why you want to be confirmed. Like meet with your mentor, talk with them and just tell me your answer to this. Um, and some of them say, some of them say like, you know, I'm just not, not interested. And that's, again, that's a, that's a success for me because one of the advantages of doing younger confirmation is you present them with this decision early. And for us, we do um, every two years starting in seventh grade. So it's usually seventh and eighth graders. But that means they have two more chances of the bishop coming. And obviously, anytime the bishop comes, they can be confirmed. But like, they have two more rounds of other people being confirmed if they say not yet to say, yeah, I think I'm going to do this now. Um, one kid mm -hmm. as an eighth grader didn't sign up for confirmation because one of the classes was going to be on his birthday. And he's like, I don't want to go to confirmation class on my birthday. And his mom was talking to me and was sort of like, what do you think about that? And I was like, you know what? Like maybe that's a sign that he's not ready to, to approach this decision yet. Like if this, if having a four hour class on the morning of your birthday means you don't want to go through with this, wait two years. And there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. I mean, adolescence is such a spread thing that some kids are ready at 13 to say, I want to make, I want to embrace this faith of my own. And some of them just aren't at that point developmentally yet. And that's fine. Like there's nothing wrong with that. There's no problem with that. It's sort of allows you to have a little bit of leeway with them to come to that on their own terms rather than saying like in the eighth grade you must get confirmed or else you'll never be a part of the church ever um so yeah kids saying no to me is a success because that means that means mm. they took your charge seriously um yeah because i've and i think it also keeps them from having some you know baggage attached yeah. to the church later on in life like they can remember that the church still loved me embraced me even when i said no to them yeah. for a season mm -hmm. rather than feeling like they had to be coerced into something they didn't really actually believe and then feel like they were being pushed away for that reason so i think 
for me, I'm also thinking about it in the sense of, you know, what is this saying to them about who we are as the church and how we value them as people, not like converts yeah. or something mm-hmm. like that. I think that's really And what really does the cool. call of God look like on their lives? Does it look like a coercing thing right. or does it look like an open invitation that that you can accept Absolutely. whenever you're ready? That provenient grace goes constantly goes out. Um, yeah, Taylor, I think you're right. I think it does say a lot about who the church is when you when you make a very non-pressured thing. And I often have to tell students like I know your parents have been asking me to nail down when the bishop is coming so that they can plan on when family's coming in. Like, I'm sort of giving them the same spiel that, like, fathers of the bride are giving on a wedding day, right? Like, I know everybody's here, but you don't have to do this. <laughs> yeah. Like, if you say no right now, mm-hmm. we'll leave. I mean, that's what my father-in-law said that to, to my wife. It was right before the ceremony. He said, you know, she was really just feeling anxious about the, the day. Um, and he was like, look, if, if we got to cancel this, like, we walk out, no problem. I'll go forward. I'll go tell Andrew. Um she did not take up his offer on that, and we're very happy because of it. But, I mean, it's that kind of out. And I tell the students, like, look, if you need me to tell your parents, like, too bad that Aunt Shirley's coming in from across the country. Like, I'm not going to be beholden to to your bringing family in for your child's mm-hmm. faith development. And I'm not sure any parents would give that much of a... I'm not sure any of the parents of my youth would be like, no, they have to be confirmed. But um, that's actually one of the things that's fun as a priest. Like, there's something about the authority of the caller that lets me go up to a parent to say, like, no, the church doesn't do this. That's not how we that's not how we roll. Mm. Absolutely. I I would 100 percent agree with that. (laughs) So but I'm curious if you feel like seventh graders like understand like because what you're talking about is taking confirmation mm-hmm. really seriously you're you're taking it seriously as a sacrament the way we want to take marriage seriously as a sacrament and i'm curious if a seventh grader you feel like is ready to take something that seriously and and make that mature of a decision because it sounds like you're confirming oh, some yeah. seventh we, graders we confirm seventh graders i would say um in one of mark ostriker's books and i don't remember where it was it might have been on his book on middle school ministry um but I've seen Marco Stryker post um, what they've found, which is that for the most part, students have made their decision for Christ. Like they've they've picked the path in middle school and in high school, they're learning the implications of that. Um, so we often look at high mm-hmm. schoolers and they're often, because their brains have developed enough, are dealing with some of these difficult questions and they're dealing with the gray areas and the metacognition i mean they're they're doing that hard work of asking tough questions but what they find is by and large middle schoolers have kind of decided which way they're going to go um they've sort of made that commitment when they're 13 already um and that plays out later i i find i don't know if i have a big enough sample size in my in my youth ministry to say whether that's true or not um but i think I think seventh graders, there's a part of the beginning of adolescence as when they're choosing to start rather than like letting them figure it out and then say like, now that I've figured it out, I want to do confirmation. Um, I don't know, like in my mind, the parallel I think of is why I would tell people getting married young is awesome because you don't, yeah, you don't sort out who you are and then find someone you're going to build your life with. You just say, I'm going to figure out who I am 
in this context. I'm going to choose to form my identity in Christ rather than I'm going to yeah. form my identity and then find out later if it gels with Christ. Um, and, and it is a big ask, and it is a yeah. risk where some kids don't know what they're doing, and they're like, whatever. Um, but I, it's the same reason I give communion to two-year-olds, right, if, if they're baptized. Like, they don't right. know what's mm-hmm. going on, but they're choosing to step into this, and I'm going to... I'm going to think about faith less in terms of cognitive assent and more a choosing to follow Jesus and letting my brain catch up. Um, mm-hmm. That's my, my posture. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I appreciate you sharing that because, I, you know, as I have thought a lot about confirmation the past six months or so, it's, it's been, I've really felt like I wanted to reserve it for sometime in, in the mm-hmm. kid's freshman year, which is a little more in line with what Taylor was talking about. And, but, but it's good to get a fresh perspective on that. Um, and, and I can, I can see what you're saying. Um, especially because I would have said, yeah, it's, it's actually getting married that makes you ready yeah. for marriage. And it's the same thing with parenting. It's becoming a parent that makes you yeah. ready to be a parent. It's a maturing, it's a maturing process that you go through by stepping into it that, you know, and to think about that in context of confirmation, I think might be really helpful. And there's no magic age for it. And there's no... I mean, yeah. If I'm sort of doing it this way, but if if I had been convinced otherwise um, early on and hadn't set up a precedent, I could be doing it differently as well. Uh, the first confirmation class we mm-hmm. did, I was only going to do it for high schoolers, but I didn't set the age limit clear, and so like one eighth grader signed up, and I was like, I was kind of thinking for high schoolers, but okay. And then like the other eighth grade parents were like, well, if they're signing up, my kid's signing up too. And then that first year I just confirmed my entire youth group because <laughs> everybody was, it just suddenly turned into like everybody, but the one sixth grader signed up and it was like, well, I guess we're just going to confirm everyone. Uh, All okay. right. That's when I was young and weak. Now I stand up to parents. <laughs> That's not true. Well, That's you're right. a priest now, right? So you can, you can like, you know, I threaten to withhold communion. No, I don't do that. That would be, Oh my goodness. That would be terrible. <laughs> And if that were the, if I withheld communion from every parent who uh, like turned in a permission form late or something like that, there'd be like half my church that doesn't <laughs> receive communion. My parents. <laughs> now, I'm, now I'm putting all the parents of my youth on blast on our podcast. <laughs> so, so I'm curious, Taylor. Like, what are you using content-wise for confirmation? Like, what are you thinking about needs to be covered for confirmation? Again, this is a lot of this is very aspirational because mm-hmm. I've only been at my church for six months and haven't had a chance to actually do this in practice. But I think, you know, our catechism is a good starting spot. Yeah. Um, maybe not giving them a catechism and going through yeah. it point by point, but, you know, classically, you cover the creed, you cover the law and ethics and morality through the Ten Commandments, you know, it's important for them to understand prayer generally through in the context of the Lord's Prayer and, and understanding some Anglican distinctives. I mean, I think the only thing I might add to that, and I've got to figure out a way, a good way to do that, or maybe this will just be something that we do in the, you know, through the rest of our content. I'm also hoping to develop some kind of, um, you know, uh, just a uh, I'm blanking on the word for it, but um, a, a whole series of, of uh, curriculum, mm. if, I guess if that's not 
you know, I can't think of the word off the top of my head. But, you know, I think it's important for them to understand yeah. the biblical story, the biblical mm-hmm. narrative. Yeah. Um, and I think that's perhaps something that is maybe missing. And I think there's enough of a sense of, uh, you know, gen- a general, um, in the context that I'm in, you know, just Bible church evangelicalism and, and things like that, that, you know, making sure that we're teaching the biblical narrative is, is really important along the way, too. So mm-hmm. I haven't quite thought through how how I will do that, but I think that, you know, I, I know that I want to strike that balance between not having it feel like a school mm-hmm. classroom and also teaching, giving them tools to actually um, create rhythms and habits yeah. of spirituality mm-hmm. that are connected to it. You know, when you're talking about formation, I think that's the most important thing. I, you know, in some ways, it's nice if they can tell me the creed from memory, but if they don't understand the actual mm-hmm. implications and if they can't like live out that Jesus yeah. is Lord, I care way more about that yeah. second piece and if that than than them telling me the creed yeah. from memory. Y- yeah, that uh, you know, as I thought a lot about confirmation, um, I, I I found myself. You know, yeah, we need to cover all these things about what is a sacrament, and you know, uh, about the law and the and the creed and the Lord's prayer and all that stuff. I wanted to get to all that stuff, but I also wanted to include in that I want to make sure these kids know the Bible. Like we know all this stuff, and we have all this stuff because because of the Bible and what the Bible has to teach us. And so I, I got to be honest, at, as as I was developing. Uh, a, a one semester confirmation curriculum, I really kind of realized I would rather think of this as like a hmm. three year catechesis process whereby mm-hmm. where we've got and I, I kind of want to turn it into a Sunday school where just like y- when you get into middle school at uh, at my church on Sunday mornings, you start doing this this cate- catechesis class and mm-hmm. we're going to cover we're going to cover spent like a whole year covering the Bible, covering the whole story of the Bible and, you know, focusing on the gospels and who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow Jesus. But then you've got, you can spend a semester talking about the, the sacraments and, and the, you know, uh, the prayer book and you can spend time talking about the creeds and you can spend time, but you've got this space to do it. And, you know, at some point in there, giving the kids an opportunity to step into confirmation as a, I don't know. It just, it, I could just see it kind of out coming out before and then realizing, well, that's really what I should be doing all the time in youth group. Yeah. Is basically all this stuff that I want to do for my confirmation class. Yeah. The hardest part <laughs> for me was um, I'm able to do this minimal thing because virtually no one in my confirmation class doesn't also come to other stuff. Um, so I'm working mm-hmm. with students and I'm assuming they're also getting all these other pieces it's difficult when I suddenly have a student who either doesn't attend regularly um, or people come to my church and they just ask like, hey, do you guys have a confirmation class? And here's this kid that I don't I don't know and I have no background with them. And that's when I am least confident about my sort of minimalist approach because I sort of feel like, yeah, I've given them all the knowledge they need to know to stand in front of the bishop and in good faith say the things they're saying. Um, but I would... I would mm-hmm. feel so insufficient if they did that and then never came to anything else. I, I feel like I've done them a disservice. Um, but I don't know how to, without turning confirmation into its a whole 
parallel thing of, of what we do with the youth group. I mean, it's just the, the structure of my program would make it difficult mm-hmm. to do much more than that. Um, unless I just incorporated confirmation, like every two years, everybody learned the content from confirmation and then kids at those ages were able to, were able to recite it. Cause I think I find my students who have gone through confirmation, like two years later, if I ask them like, what's a sacrament and they're like, Oh, it's uh inward grace outside <laughs> sign. Like they kind of get it. Something, something like that. It's a symbol, uh, right? It's a thing symbol, that does a thing. Um, but then like four years out when they're seniors, they're like, yeah, it's that thing that we think does things. And you're like, oh, I've failed you entirely. Um, but like Taylor, you said that it's that second piece of following Jesus that matters. And there's a part of me that's like, if they forget all of the, if they forget all the things I taught them, but they still leave with this sense of like, I went through confirmation and I, I chose to follow Jesus and I'm going to keep on learning more things, but I made that decision and I sort of made that vow. Um, that's still a success to me. Like that's the win that I want. If they remember what a sacrament is, cool. Um, if they remember what the seventh commandment is, swell. Um, but if they, if that moment had significance in their lives because of the ritual and because of going through that and remembering that they had taken on these vows as their own, that's the actual thing I want them to have retained. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's un-Anglican of me. I don't know. Everyone's making up <laughs> Anglican as we go these days. So. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, what I found as I was developing a, a confirmation course was actually the the um, catechism mm-hmm. that we have from the ACNA is actually really good, but it's completely unwieldy. It's huge. It's got over 300 questions. Like there's almost no, and there, and it's not presented in like a, you're supposed to sit down and ask these questions and discuss the answers sure. kind of format. It's really just uh, what do we believe about this? This is what we believe about this. Um, so what I found myself really wishing we had from young Anglicans is a confirmation curriculum that was like had the golden seal of <laughs> approval from Stephen Ty, the ACNA <laughs> canon for youth ministry. Um, and I'm just curious. So for me, I think that sounds awesome. And I would love to like just embrace something like that if it was handed down to me. I'm curious if you guys feel the same way or if you're like, nope, I've got something that's working and not, you know, I'm good for that. I'm a control freak, so I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. I'll write it all myself. Um, <laughs> I, maybe it would be good, but I... Yeah, that's my personality is such that if the if the province were to hand something down to me, um, I'd feel suspicious of it, and I'd be like, uh, I'm not sure about this. So that's my, but that's probably sin working its way out into my ministry rather than rather than anything else. <laughs> Confession right. of a youth pastor, right? <laughs> well, and I think the big thing, right, is even if it's anytime you use any kind of youth ministry curriculum, right, you. If you aren't thinking about how to adapt it yeah. for mm. your kids and your context, you're, it's not going to sound genuine. You're going to sound like you're parroting something off. So I think, you know, um, I would hope that people wouldn't just, you know, just take it and, and do it exactly yeah. as it is. They would that, mm-hmm. you know, even if a resource like that did exist, that they would really think through how do you how do you adapt this to who our church is, who our students are, what they need. 
you know, mm-hmm. I think that could be a really cool thing. And especially, you know, when we're talking about resourcing churches yep. that don't have yep. the luxury to have a part-time or full-time youth minister, you know, mm-hmm. you, there might be a lay person who could take that on and just needs a little bit of that, you know, someone to, to give them a little structure for how to mm-hmm. do it. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kind of with you in the sense of Andrew, that I'm going to be producing a lot yeah. of my own stuff. Um, but I do, I do see the value in, in having that. And it would be, I think it could be a, a, a gift to the wider yeah. province if we could come up with something. Well, congratulations, like Eric. You're now in charge of writing the ACNA confirmation <laughs> curriculum. Um, well, we should probably wrap things up or else we'll, we'll go on enough rabbit trails and no one will ever listen through this entire podcast. Um, any closing thoughts, any statements you guys feel like things that need to be said? Final words. None from me. No, I just appreciate getting the chance to talk with other people who are in the same boat that I am, who are dealing with the same struggles and joys. And, you know, that's been one of the fun things about doing going to all these young Anglican gatherings is um, I've, I've felt an instant community and camaraderie amongst the the folks who show up. So if there are any, if there's anybody out there listening who hasn't attended a young Anglicans thing, I will shamelessly plug um, rooted and, and just any opportunity to get further connected. And the young Anglicans podcast. We really yeah. appreciate, we really appreciate yeah. you coming on Taylor. Uh, it was great having you and um, just, I, I've enjoyed getting to know you a little bit over the past six months or so. I look look forward to getting to know you better. Yeah, thanks, guys. It's good All right. to be with you. Are okay, you... so can I can I finish with yeah, you a, do it. with a collect? Okay, uh, so um, this is from the the uh, 1979 prayer book, uh, a, a collect for young persons. God, our Father, you see our children growing up in an unsteady and confusing world. Show them that your ways give more life than the ways of the world, and that following you is better than chasing after selfish goals. Help them to take failure not as a measure of their worth, but as a chance for a new start. Give them strength to hold their faith in you and to keep alive their joy in your creation. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Amen.